you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. The year was 1980. I was in the eighth grade at my Christian school that year, Calvin Christian School in South Holland, Illinois. In our eighth grade American history class, we were studying the Equal Rights Amendment, also known as the ERA. This amendment concerning the equal rights of women was passed by Congress in 1972, but in 1980, it was still yet to be ratified by the majority of states. So our assignment in that class was to form two different groups, one for ERA and one against ERA. We were to research the amendment, write a summary of our position, then participate in a debate with the other side. Ah, what fun. As you can guess, since we were kind of silly eighth graders, this turned into a boys versus girls debate. I can even recall getting in arguments on the playground during recess with the lead girl on the other team. Oh, have I said which side I was on? Even in eighth grade, I was a conservative Republican and an anti-feminist, so I was against the Equal Rights Amendment. And as an eighth grade boy, I'm sure I sounded anti-woman and probably very sexist. But looking back, those debates were good for me. For one thing, part of the assignment was actually to support your position from Scripture. We had to study what the Bible said about men and women and come to a conclusion if a Christian could be a feminist. Well, it's quite a long time since those early days of the feminist movement. Even though the ERA was never ratified, it can be said that feminism has certainly won over the culture. We have all been greatly influenced by this worldview. The culture of feminism has affected how women see themselves, how men see women, and how women and men relate to each other. It is much more than an effort to seek equality of the sexes. And it certainly isn't seeking to have a biblical view of men and women and their roles. This is yet another cultural issue that seems to have won the day. But that doesn't mean we have to accept it as our dominant worldview. As with the other cultural issues we've talked about so far in this series, we must know this is a battle that is worth fighting as Christians as we train and prepare the next generation of girls and boys. So let's dig down deep into the heart of the culture of feminism and think together about how to engage it biblically. Well, let's begin with some definitions and history lessons concerning feminism. I hope you're not bored by a little history because we're going to go a little in depth on the history of feminism. The first thing to recognize is that there is no agreed upon single definition of feminism. Many people define it as simply the effort to end gender discrimination and bring about gender equality. But there are really many types of feminism. A good way to understand what feminism is, is to recognize the various waves of feminism that have occurred in American history and in history in general. 
So here's your short feminism history lesson. First, we'll call it the first wave. This began in the 19th century as the first real women's political movement in the Western world. This first wave of feminists were looking for certain rights in a male-dominated world. The right to vote was tantamount, as well as reproductive rights. After years of activism, the American Congress finally passed the 19th Amendment in 1920 and gave women the vote. First wave feminism had a fairly simple goal then, for society to recognize women were humans, not property. Then next came second wave feminism. This took place in the 1960s and the 1970s. It built on first wave feminism and challenged what women's roles were in society and what they should be. Inspired greatly by the civil rights movement and protests against the Vietnam War, these activists focused on the institutions that held women back. This meant taking a closer look at why and how women were oppressed. Traditional gender and family roles also began to be questioned. Some of the major victories that occurred during this second wave were the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and, of course, Roe v. Wade in 1973. During this time, three main types of feminism emerged. This is key to understanding the culture of feminism. They are, one, mainstream feminism, two, radical feminism, and three, cultural feminism, which is an interesting label. Mainstream feminism focused on institutional reforms, reducing gender discrimination, and promoting equality of the sexes. But radical feminism sought to reshape society entirely, believing the entire system was inherently patriarchal. The focus here was on true liberation of women from oppressive men. If you listen to the podcast on critical race theory, this sounds very similar. And then third, cultural feminism held the same views as the radical feminists, yet went even further to teach that there is a female essence that is distinct and superior to men. Well, then we move on to the third wave. The third wave of feminism has built on the victories of the first two waves. So going into about the 1990s, women enjoyed more rights and power than ever before in history. So now the radical and cultural feminists could push the envelope of gender even further. They began to speak more of feminist identity, welcoming individuality and rebellion. Issues of race and transgenderism became more connected to feminism. The one rule of this wave was that there were no longer any rules. A woman should choose how she lived her life in all ways. During this wave, feminism became a global power, not just an American one. And then now we could say currently in the 2020s, we are now in the fourth wave of feminism. While third wave issues are still bouncing around, this is the wave of the Me Too movement. The movement that hoped to expose how women have been abused by powerful men in the major institutions of our world. Not surprisingly, there is much more infighting among feminists today. 
There are major critics of white feminism feeling that the unique struggles of women of color have been neglected. Transgender rights are now in the forefront as they push against the gender binary, which only thinks in terms of masculine and feminine. Really, quite honestly, it's a mess out there among the radical feminists since they are simply not happy with equal rights or equal pay or even equal power in institutions. Again, they are pushing the envelope even further to have feminism to be the dominant cultural understanding of gender and sexuality. So there you go. I hope I haven't bored you too much with this brief history and summary of feminism. Now, we also need to talk about Christian feminists who believe Christianity and feminism are compatible. But before we get there, we'll start with these understandings first. First, we need to address the equality of women. The Bible clearly teaches us that men and women are both made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It can't be any clearer that men and women are both human beings made in the image of God. One is not human and the other property. One is not superior to the other. With this understanding, Paul wrote about the oneness of Christian men and women. In Galatians 3.28, he writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Again, men are not superior to women. Women are not to be property of men in a male-dominated world. Men and women, in this sense, are equal. So when you're raising your sons and daughters, you must instill the biblical truth that they are equal in the eyes of God. Even though boys and girls are different, they're both made in God's image. And as Christians, men and women are one in Christ. Neither is superior to the other. So Christians must be against any and all true oppression of women in this world, where women are not treated as made in the image of God. But now how we define equality of women is where it gets tricky and where we see the vital differences we have with feminism. Here's one example to demonstrate the difference. This quote is from a woman who calls herself a Christian feminist. She writes, Similar to a lot of Christian women, I grew up in a congregation where I heard verses like Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Taken at face value, these verses seem to support God's sanctioned gender inequality and have been used to justify a whole host of abusive behaviors. But as I started to dive deeper into Bible commentary, I began to see how the meaning of verses changed when their full context was applied. Do you hear it? If we believe as Christians that wives are commanded to be submissive to husbands, then we are involved in gender inequality. In other words, men and women cannot be considered truly equal if wives have to submit to husbands. So that's why Christian feminists have to reinterpret this passage and its surrounding context to teach that wives and husbands actually just submit to each other. 
But the truth is you can understand men and women as equal without turning marriage into an egalitarian relationship. Egalitarianism in marriage means there's no spiritual leader, just two equal partners and equal roles submitting to each other. Just as this Christian feminist believes that wives submitting to husbands has led to a whole host of abusive behaviors, removing role relationships in marriage also leads to a whole host of wrong and unhealthy practices. But I digress. Let's give another example, this time in the church. If we believe men and women are equal, then what do we do with the biblical teaching that only men should be pastors and elders in the church? Well, according to feminists and even Christian feminists, you have to either get rid of this teaching or find a way to reinterpret what the Bible clearly says. How can men and women be equal if they both don't have equal opportunity to be pastors or elders? So what we're doing here is conflating the idea of equality with the idea of sameness. Can we treat women as equals yet also believe we have different roles in the church? Now we could give all sorts of other examples in society. Universities have to navigate equality in sports so men and women have equal opportunities. Part of the Me Too movement was to uncover male dominance in Hollywood, keeping women from positions of power. There are examples all over the place of the dominant view that equality of men and women means same in all ways. This is why we must first be trained by Scripture to have God's view on all things. He makes it clear that the equality of women and men does not necessarily equate to the same opportunities in all areas of life. And just because a person is in a submissive role does not mean the two people are not equal. The Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate how wives, children, and slaves or employees today are all in submissive roles, yet equal to those in authority. Equality does not automatically mean equal in roles and responsibilities. I want to continue to address the culture of feminism by interacting with a couple of different writers who see Christianity and feminism as compatible. These are the Christian feminists. I'll take this first Christian feminist quote a piece at a time. It starts here. Many Christians believe that Christianity and feminism are incompatible. But this assumption is drawn from biased definitions of both feminism and Christianity. Some Christians have an extremely negative perception of feminism. Feminism conjures up images of angry, man-hating, bra-burning women fighting for unnecessary ends. After all, they argue, what more do women need when they can work outside the home and vote? They believe that women are already equal but need to accept their different roles. With this skewed definition of feminism squarely in mind, it is easy to see how some Christians feel that this subversive nature of feminism does not fit the purpose of a peace and love-oriented Christianity. Okay, that quote is troublesome on many levels, so let's analyze her thinking. First, there are feminists who are angry, man-hating people. These are not imaginary people. As mentioned earlier, there is a radical feminism that is anti-man and simply want all the power that men seem to have. 
Second, being against the worldly culture of feminism is not equal to telling women that they should be happy that they can live in a world where they can work outside the home and vote. We are not patting women on the head and telling them to be happy with their victories they have so far and to be quiet and submissive in all of the realms. Well, thirdly, she gets to the heart of her anger with this quote. They believe that women are already equal but need to accept their different roles. Again, we have the difference in how we define equality. Yes, men and women are equal because God has created us as equals. But God also commands both men and women to accept their different roles. It is not men who are telling women to accept their roles. Now more of her reasoning behind why Christianity and feminism are compatible. She writes, Simply put, feminism advocates for the political economic, and social equality of the sexes. It asks difficult questions about gender socialization, gender roles, and systemic inequalities. It examines issues like child marriage, domestic violence, female genital mutilation, rape culture, and the gender pay gap. Okay, certainly these are some of the things feminists fight for. And of course, Christians must be against all oppression of women, Men, children, everybody. But the connotation is that unless you are a feminist, you aren't against these things or you're not really fighting for women. And of course, we still have issues with the details and definitions. What exactly is political equality or social equality? What are the difficult questions of gender socialization or gender roles? She continues in her writing, When I read the Bible, I see this type of feminism modeled from the very beginning. Both men and women were created in God's image and given the same mandate, to rule over creation. This is the way God intended things to be before sin entered the world. Again, let's stop there and interpret. Yes, both men and women are created in God's image, as we have already established. And yes, both are given the creation mandate, representing all humanity. But what she is insinuating is that the complementary roles of leader and helpmate came after sin entered the world. Before sin, husband and wife were equal and walked side by side. After sin, men started dominating women. This is just not theologically accurate. God gave complementary roles to husband and wife to rule over creation and to work together in his kingdom in particular roles. Well, let's move on to another excerpt from a different Christian feminist. The submissive godly woman archetype is frequently referenced as the gold standard of biblical womanhood. However, if you take time to read up on the women of the Bible, you'll find ladies who are the exact opposite. Chapter after chapter, they use their skills to transcend the oppressive culture they lived in. Now, it is sad to hear the cynicism from a Christian about being a godly, submissive woman. This is what the Bible teaches. It's not just some archetype. It's not just what men want. God has made this standard. What's even worse is that to be a submissive, godly woman is thought to be weak, lacking skills, unable to fight the oppressive culture. Women who strive to be godly in all relationships and submissive to their husbands are fighting the oppressive culture they live in. 
The radical feminist culture oppresses godly women, demanding they rebel against God and their husband and be who they want to be. Radical feminism, even the Christian brand, requires women to fight against any sort of male leadership and headship, believing this to be a fight for biblical equality. As I mentioned earlier, another fight the Christian feminists are waging is for women to have any and all positions of leadership in the church, including pastors. Their reasoning begins with thoughts like this writer, who says, After Jesus quit the scene, women continue to have an equal role in the growth of early Christianity. Gradually, though, churches began to resemble other social institutions, promoting men to positions of authority and relegating women to the back pew. Now, these remarks are just so sad and frustrating. In this feminist worldview, Jesus elevated women to authority and leadership. The early apostles did the same, but over time, the church became corrupted by a patriarchal culture and returned women to the back pew. Talk about a warped view of history. Certainly, the church is full of sinners and has wandered into error and has become corrupt in ways. But it was not following a corrupt culture to stand for male leadership. It was being faithful to Scripture. Just to continue to repeat myself, it is not antithetical for women's equality for them to fulfill roles different than what God has called men to. The bigger problem throughout church history is men abandoning their God-given roles as spiritual leaders in the home and church. Well, here's more of the feminist agenda. She writes, A recent Barna Group study gives me hope there's some progress being made. It found that one of every 11 Protestant pastors is female, triple as many as 25 years ago. She continues, The need for more women pastors isn't just about equal representation either. A lack of them also leads to one-dimensional preaching. Gender is a filter spiritual experiences pass through. And when men's experiences are the only ones being expounded upon, half the congregation leaves church empty-handed. Wow. So churches need female pastors because male preaching is deficient. Since it filters through masculinity, it leaves women out. This is what the radical culture of feminism is trying to teach women today. It has for years been redefining preaching as something that is connected to gender rather than grounded in the word of God. You hear how it is more than having equal representation Feminism pushes the agenda that women actually make better pastors and better preachers. Of course, this denies that women do have a voice in the church, as they're called also and gifted also and skilled also to teach the word. Just because God calls only men to be pastors and preachers doesn't deny women a vital ministry in many vital ministries. Sadly, Christian feminism is just reflecting the radical feminism agenda that is at work in other institutions, and then they apply it to the church. So the church is no longer to be anchored in God's word and God's standards, but adapt to the more modern feministic ways. One last issue that feminists have worked on since wave two feminism is the issue of abortion. 
to be a feminist, you must be pro-choice. You must be for the murder of babies in the womb. Now, you may be thinking, a Christian feminist must draw the line here. How can they call themselves Christian and be pro-abortion? Well, listen to the words of a Christian feminist in this extended quote. She writes, Beyond church, I've thought a lot about how Christian feminism functions within politics. Though my own parents raised me to be pro-life, my opinion eventually changed. As I dove into research, I saw how popular pro-life narratives were ignoring the complexity of the issue, focusing on banning abortion versus reforming the social policies and economic injustices that directly contribute to the abortion rates. Around that same time, I witnessed the abortion process firsthand when a close friend made the difficult decision to end her pregnancy. I remember praying about everything and sensing yet another revelation settle around me. Pro-life didn't let women exercise their God-given free will. You heard it. Pro-life didn't let women exercise their God-given free will. There has never been a time in my own life where God has changed my mind by stripping me of options. Pro-choice was instantly repositioned as a practical way for me to embody God's unconditional love. Do you hear it? First, pro-lifers are only interested in stopping abortions, not about helping women. Second, she believes pro-lifers take away a woman's free will. Third, she believes that God always gives us options and choices, so we should be pro-choice. And fourth, pro-choice reflects God's love to people. This is just one voice of Christian feminism, but many Christian feminists believe the same. Because what happens is feminism ends up ditching biblical Christianity for a redefined Christianity. It seeks to redefine God and even his love. Feminism sells itself as being pro-woman when it's really just pro-self. It is not helping women follow Christ. It is not helping them obey God's word or glorify God. So as we consider the impact of feminist culture, it is vital to recognize the battle lines that are drawn. Rather than simply fighting for women's equality or for women's rights in this world, it is sought to change everything about women and how men and women relate. It comes from a narrative that women have always been oppressed by men and they must become free of that oppression. So these are the battles that continue to rage and the ones we need to fight in. First, wives in marriage. They are told by feminists that they must not act as helpmates or submissive in any way. Complementarianism just subjugates and abuses women. Second, the battle that women must have the opportunity to have any and all leadership positions in the church. A church with only male pastors is not serving women. It is ignoring them. To tell a woman she can't have a certain role in the church is to deny her the use of her gifts and skills. It is tantamount to abuse. Third, women must be able to choose what to do with their own bodies. This includes having the freedom to abort their babies. And then fourth, the ultimate battle, women must choose for themselves who they want to be, who they want to love, how they want to live. To stand in the way of any of these unlimited freedoms is to be anti-woman. 
Well, with this last and ultimate battle line, we expose the corrupt root of feminism. It really all began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to do things their way. They ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be like God rather than live under God. Feminism, like all worldly cultures, is a rebellious movement, rebelling against God and all God has put into authority. Okay, before we end this episode, I think it's vital that we briefly talk through how biblical Christianity is truly pro-woman and not anti-woman. These are the things we must teach our children, especially our girls, so they can defend themselves from the ongoing onslaught of radical feminism. First, God is the one who created woman in his image. So woman is at her very best of womanhood when she is obedient to her maker, when she reflects the character of God, when she glorifies God, not herself. And then second, woman was created as bone of bone, flesh of flesh of man. She was created to complement man, not to be property of men. In marriage, she is to live out the vital role of helpership. Wives are to make husbands better, and husbands are to love and lead their wives in a Christ-like way. Third, then, the submission of wives is a direct submission to Christ. And there is nothing better for a woman to submit to than to her Lord Jesus Christ. While a man may not love and lead a woman well, Jesus does it perfectly. Submitting to Christ is the safest place a woman has to live in a saving relationship with Christ. And fourth principle, women have been given the gift of bearing children, even though the fall has made it full of pain and heartache. Woman is not the author of life. God is. Rather than being the killer of an unborn baby, a woman has the charge to protect and care for her baby. This is pro-woman. This elevates woman to the essential role of mother. Fifth, no one has more freedom than the Christian woman and the Christian man, of course. Freedom is not having unlimited choices. Left to ourselves and outside of God's law, we just choose to live for ourselves and destroy ourselves. Our freedom is in Christ. It comes in obedience to Christ. Only the Christian is free not to spend their lives sinning against God, self, and other people. And then sixth, biblical Christianity has always been about caring for the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the abused, the disabled, the hurting. Women have always been and always are essential to the work of the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel. God has chosen the roles of women in his church in his order for his purposes. Seventh, when the local church is functioning biblically, men and women do work side by side in ministry in various roles. Worshiping together, discipling one another, serving one another, loving one another. Brothers are not more important than sisters. Spiritual fathers and mothers are absolute necessities. Well, much more can be said, but let me end with a reminder of what all non-biblical cultures attempt to do. They are used by Satan to divide rather than unite. 
Remember that the Apostle Paul writes that Christ brings the dividing wall down between people, including men and women. Feminism seeks to bring that wall back up, pitting men and women against each other. As Christians, we need to enjoy the fact that the peace of God gives us peace with one another. Being reconciled in Christ to God means men and women are reconciled to one another. This is what we proclaim to women. Enjoy the fullness of womanhood in Christ. And men, enjoy the great gift that women are to you. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.